This is Geeks and Jacks. And welcome back to Geeks and Jacks, episode 98, recording January 18th. 2022. This is Ryan Sullivan. Hope your listeners are making the best of the start of the new year. Before getting into this episode, this podcast is on Anchor.fm. You can also find us on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. So head on down to those places and search for Geeks and Jocks. Plenty of content. So I hope you listeners are up for a little bit of tech news with Xbox, PlayStation, 25 years of King of the Hill, NFL stuff, and one or two other things here for this episode of Geeks and Jocks. I'll tell you something. The weather... Kind of rough a little bit in parts of the country. The fact that the South was a, was surprisingly getting uh, some wintry mix down in places such as North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. I think Alabama might have got hit a little bit. Tennessee as well. Pretty nutty. I mean, when you expect winter weather, you're thinking about the Midwest, Northeast, maybe a little bit Northwest too. too. Uh, being in New York... Woo! Let me tell you, cold, and it's not going to be pretty as far as having pleasant temperatures, and actually having a bit of a snowstorm, and some rough winds as the uh, day went on uh, yesterday, actually overnight yesterday. Oh man, recording in the early hours by the way, so... Yeah, usually around this time of the year, the weather is kind of rough a little bit, mainly temperatures. Sometimes it just, the memories don't fade away sometimes when you think about being in the cold weather, and I think back a little bit, the last 10 years or so, having to walk up to college campuses with the wind blowing blowing in my face, when it's like 20 degrees out, 10 degrees out, freezing really bad. The fact that snot turns into icicle snot, and your your tears when you when have the wind blowing so hard that uh, it freezes on your face. Ooh. Uh, bundle up. Just bundle up wherever you are in those regions that are extremely cold. That pack of cold weather ain't disappearing yet. Oof. Yeah, so... Anyway, uh, quick little TV stuff. Uh, 17th would have been 100th birthday of Betty White, but unfortunately she passed away New Year's Eve. And... The case being, according to some headlines, I think it was not too long ago, about her having a stroke on Christmas. 
And I don't know how some people have these. I'm not sure if there's a way you can heal or f- help with people that are at the age like Betty White. Still, I mean, I think a lot of people, when I talked about uh, her last week, I wonder if a lot of people were expecting her to be 100 and then pass away. Oh, well. But that's not what the main TV thing I'm thinking of right now. And the main thing, uh, last week, on January 12th, King of the Hill turned 25. So what is King of the Hill, you might be asking? It's a cartoon. It aired on Fox. And it was a big hit for the network. When you look at the realm of television as far as primetime animated shows there weren't many that tried to be in the same ballpark as the Simpsons the closest I don't think there was really any attempts of now that I think about it outside of The Critic which is a John Lovitz cartoon created by some guys that produced The Simpsons it ran for two years didn't have a lot of episodes actually had about 23 episodes and yeah two seasons didn't really muster any good ratings it's kind of a cult show now that I think about it but King of the Hill created by Mike Judge and Greg Daniels Judge had success with uh, a cartoon before and that was with Beavis and Butthead Beavis and Butthead um, debuted as like a short back in 92 and became a show not too long after in 93. Lots of, lots of success, controversy. And at the time King of the Hill came out, uh, Beavis and Butthead had a movie uh, come out uh, December 96 and it did pretty well. It was a moderate hit, all things considered. And so riding on that success, you got King of the Hill about Hank Hill and his family in Arlen, Texas. You know, wife, son, and uh, niece. A few of his uh, friends that are psychotic, depressed, always eyeing on the ladies, and many other characters as the show went on. What, what, what helped that show was that it was realistic. It didn't try to be cartoonish, although you have some stuff that felt cartoonish, but it stayed in reality. It didn't try to go overboard and, hey, this guy broke his arm in one episode, um, he'll be fine the next episode. No, there were stuff that, you know, these characters had to. You know, there was an episode, a series of episodes where um, the wife, Peggy, both her and Hank, go on a skydiving thing for the, to celebrate their 20th anniversary. She gets hurt and is stuck to a wheelchair for a while. And actually, actually stuck in a bed for a while and then um, in a... Uh, in a wheelchair for a little bit until she can like muster up the strength to get back to walking and all that. So I mean, kind of realistic. It's a pretty realistic. 
uh, had a pretty lengthy run and was a it did pretty well in the ratings its first couple of years and I almost feel like this is when Fox tried to push for more animated stuff. There was a few shows a couple of years later that that they um, tried to get to be successful. Um, Family Guy in early 99, Futurama not too long after that. Uh, there was the PJs, which was, I believe Eddie Murphy was the star of that show, and I think that ran for a couple of years. Family Guy's still on the air. Uh, Futurama ran for a few years on Fox and then came back on Comedy Central. It, it proved that Fox could find a good animated show throughout the you know the timeline of King of the Hill. Ran for about 13 seasons, ended in September of 2009, and it's you see the rough edges of the early days. I mean, rough animation, though not as bad as The Simpsons. And I, I would say, like many other shows, it found its groove probably a couple seasons in, especially as the characters found their voices and their identities. Uh, whether it's you know Hank and Peggy, the son Bobby, or the friends uh, Bill, Dale, and Boomhauer, and they they did some pretty good stuff. You know whether it's stuff involving Bobby in the high school, Dale's conspiracy theories, maybe some military things with Bill, or Peggy being a complete jackass as a teacher or whatever. Uh, you know it's it it's one of the one of the better adult cartoons that you can find, and it's not too offensive or anything like that. And it hit a pretty good mark, you know, 13 seasons. Yeah. Not many shows you could say hold up, but I would say, I would say this is one of the cartoons that you're not going to feel disgusted about. Maybe maybe an episode here or there, uh, but otherwise, I mean, pretty nice to see, and actually a show that showed age with, you know, characters aging, though very slowly as well. That's one thing I kind of like about it, too. (sighs) I don't think you'll ever see another cartoon like that. I know Mike Judge has tried doing other shows. There was Silicon Valley that aired about six, seven years ago, I believe. He did try to do another cartoon called The Good Family. I did watch that pilot. Uh, that was like 2009. And that was just an awful pilot. Just just a bad concept. He came back for Beavis and Butthead in 2011. I thought that season was decent. And supposedly Beavis and Butthead are coming back. And that was announced uh, almost two years ago. And still nothing brought up about it. I'm curious as to whether or not... Whether or not the show is in development hell again. Or... Maybe they don't see a potential audience in it. Because Beavis and Butthead episodes... They are... Their episodes are basically seven minute cartoons. When it first aired on MTV... 
they um, in between ep- you know parts of episodes they would review music videos and just be liking a video or just hating it and they did kind of the same thing when the show got brought back 10 years ago only looking at MTV shows such as Jersey Shore and I believe Addiction I forget what the show is but someone that gets addicted to something I forget they did that I'm not sure the format would work today now that I think about it I think I think Judge was better at doing stuff such as Silicon Valley and King of the Hill but yeah 25 years of King of the Hill I would say Judge is pretty underrated as far as doing TV stuff He he knows how to make stuff funny really knows how to Moving on to a little bit of sports. So the first wild card weekend in the books. And pretty disastrous. That's what I'll say. Uh, Before getting into that, a couple other firings did occur. That's one thing I hate about recording um, episodes. Is not knowing what is happening after... uh, after recording it, it, it's a shame because there's some good stuff I do want to talk about, and unfortunately, you have to wait until the next week. So, two two additional firings: uh, New York Giants Joe Judge. Uh, kind of looking at it now, yeah, I'm not surprised at him getting fired. I think if the second half of the season didn't go on a really bad note especially with some of the injuries that occurred, like Daniel Jones, for example. Um, I think I think Judge would have probably had better job security. And my first thought was whether or not he would... I, I felt like he would have been back for a third year just because of what he did his first year. But the... The ownership didn't see see it that way, and the end result is a team looking for their fourth head coach in in seven years, actually six years now. That I think about it with uh, yeah Ben McAdoo, then Pat Shermer, and now Joe Judge, who's their fourth coach going to be? And each of them lasted about two years. Well, McAdoo last less than two. He got fired after that Raiders game. Jeez Louise. And the Houston Texans fired David Culley. So this kind of surprised people a little bit. And I think I think it's kind of a little unfair that Culley did get fired given the fact that the Texans, when you look at how bad the year prior Bill O'Brien screwed things up for them, um, yeah, it's kind of a shame Cully couldn't get another season or two. And it's not as if they were truly terrible. I think if you had to look at the glaring flaws, it's not having some of your veteran guys on defense 
and relying on a rookie QB for most of your season and a putrid run game for the most part. Uh, Davis Mills, given the situation, he looked pretty good. His stats are probably better than most rookie QBs when you look at it. 2,600 yards, I believe, 16 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. For a rookie year, that's not bad. But I think we get spoiled by looking at stats of players such as Baker Mayfield, Mac Jones, and, and a few others. Justin Herbert, for example, too. We are spoiled by the passing game. We are truly spoiled. Anyway, you know, see what happens. I think the Chicago Bears are looking at um, Brian Flores for a potential coaching job. I think they need an offensive-minded guy. They got defensive guys. That's their bread and butter. But they need someone to really hone in on the skills of Justin Fields and David Montgomery. That offense needs to be fixed. And I'm not sure it'll get fixed anytime soon. So with that, first wild card, first the wild card stuff. Like I said, kind of a disastrous weekend. Though it didn't start off that way. It started with kind of a controversial game with the Cincinnati Bengals and the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. And the Bengals coming up with their first playoff win since January 1991. And their first loss to begin that streak, coincidentally, was against the Raiders when they were called the Los Angeles Raiders. And what some call the curse of Bo Jackson because... The Bengals were responsible for the hip injury that ended Bo Jackson's career as a football player. He did go on to play baseball for another three seasons or so, and he was never the same, I think, as a baseball player. Not that he wasn't phenomenal at all. He was kind of decent. Definitely had some good power and good arm. Anyway, uh, yeah, you have Joe Burrow making his playoff debut and played a pretty good football game. You look at um, a couple touchdowns, uh, Jamar Chase having a good game, uh, C.J. Uzuma having a decent one. Not a lot of T. Higgins, and Joe Mixon didn't exactly have the ideal game himself. Uh, Raiders... I don't know why they gave up rushing the ball. Josh Jacobs, early on, had eight carries for 64 yards, five more carries for 19, so 83 total. I don't know how you don't utilize him more. He is a 20-carry type of guy, and your last game, he ran for over 100. Why give up on the run game? Derek Carr, 29 for 54, 310, one score, one pick. Uh, The controversy came on a touchdown and whether or not a whistle was blown or not. And it led to this crew, led by Jerome Boger, getting suspended for the rest of the playoffs. So they're done. And 
this is the type of stuff that shouldn't happen in the playoffs, and when the refs screw it up, it becomes even louder, especially with it being a playoff game. And to a lot of people, they might act surprised when I say this, but Jerome Boger is a terrible ref. He's been around for a very long time, and his his crew calls tons of penalties. Whether you agree with them or not, it doesn't matter. Just his he his calls really do dictate how a game goes, and between him, Adrian Hill, and Sean Hockley, I don't know who's the worst. I would I would say probably Boger right now. Well, I could see Hill or um, or Hockley being worse as time goes on. But nevertheless, um, it was a it was a decent game altogether, and you'd think maybe Patriots versus Bills would. No. What a disastrous showing by the Patriots. The Buffalo Bills, forty-seven to seventeen, big win. For for the boys in blue. Buffalo. When you look at the stats. Josh Allen. 308. Five touchdowns. Devin Singletary. 81 yards. Two rushing touchdowns. A couple touchdowns to Dawson Knox. Gabrielle Davis. Had one. Emmanuel Sanders had one. And Tommy Doyle. Offensive lineman. Touchdown. Crazy, right? They pretty much beat up on Mac Jones, which for a playoff debut, 232, two touchdowns, 24 out of 38, but two interceptions. And the crazy thing out of all this for Buffalo, perfect game. They called it the first perfect game in NFL history. So what does that mean specifically? They didn't punt the ball. They didn't kick a field goal at all. Or even attempt to kick a field goal. They didn't fumble the ball. They didn't throw an interception. They scored a touchdown on every drive with the exception of the last plays of the game being kneel downs. And this is the second time that they hadn't punted. Coincidentally, it was against New England a few weeks ago. They didn't punt at all. So there's at least three occasions where the Bills didn't punt. One of the games that actually turns 30 in September will be a no-punt game between both them and the San Francisco 49ers, an early game in 92. And they became the first team in the postseason since January 2004 when the Indianapolis Colts didn't punt at all. How nutty is that? I mean, it, it, to do this in cold weather, by the way, is, is something else, too. Five-degree temperatures, wind chill of negative six. Not strong winds, though. It was pretty calm, though not exactly light winds, about six, seven miles an hour. One of the people that got to watch this game, a shirtless Ryan Fitzpatrick, who Buffalo did give a... Fitzpatrick sometime in the in the league a few years. When you're out for a hip injury for this year, you're looking for stuff to do. 
took his kids, supposed I guess, to the to the game and the guy I mean, the guy loves Buffalo. I mean, they gave him a real chance to be a starter. And when it's all said and done for his career, I mean he's going to be looked at as one of the more interesting careers. So <laughs> supporting his old team, Buffalo has a date with Kansas City. Uh, Cincinnati uh, will face Tennessee. Big question is, how good will Derrick Henry be? This is gonna, it's gonna, these are gonna be good games, really good games. If they can learn Buffalo, if they can learn to fix the mistakes that they probably made at some points during their games against Kansas City this year and last year in the playoffs, they will find themselves in a good spot to make the Super Bowl. As far as the Pats go, I mean, Mac Jones will learn a few things. He's going to be around for a long time. I know it. And I'm sure the run game and defense will get back into form as well. Um, baby steps. I'm sure Bill Belichick knows that. Uh, then we get to the Sunday games. The ju- the judgment of this game score, don't get fooled. This was a disastrous game. 31-15, to Tampa Bay over Philadelphia. Philadelphia didn't score until the fourth quarter. While Jalen Hurts' debut wasn't bad, it certainly didn't look good at all early on in the game. But overall... Uh, threw for just barely above 50% of his passes, 258, uh, one score, two interceptions. Their run game didn't do anything at all outside of a Boston Scott touchdown, actually his only carry of the game. Some big plays out of Dallas Goddard, Devontae Smith, Kenneth Gainwell. Other than that, there's a lot of questions to... Jalen Rager, and a couple other guys that's like, why'd they draft these guys? And of course, Tom Brady being Tom Brady, 271, two scores. Uh, Sean Vaughn and Giovanni Bernard getting, getting the party started with uh, each getting a rushing touchdown. Mike Evans with another big game altogether. Actually, the only guy that had any big chunk of yardage, 117 and a score. I mean, even with all the depleted stuff on the receiving game and in defense, Tampa Bay definitely had themselves a huge day. Huge, huge day. Probably the biggest game of the year for the wild card, San Francisco-Dallas. The last time they faced each other was back in 1994. Actually, the 94 season when the Niners went on to win Super Bowl 29. And the team that was in their obstacles for the 92 season and 93 season was the Dallas Cowboys. Both teams from 92 to 95 were responsible for the four Super Bowls. Three from Dallas, one from San Francisco. And you had a basic chess match pretty basic chess match. Who can run the ball better? Who can throw it better? And in the end, I looked at it as a potential upset. 
in being probably the big upset, San Francisco winning. They won 23-17. to Jimmy Garoppolo, not a good game out of him, and a sprained shoulder as well. There's questions to whether or not he'll play against Green Bay. Elijah Mitchell leading the way with 96 yards and a and a score on his on the rushing performance. Debo Samuel for 72 and a score as well. They didn't they did enough as far as rushing the ball goes. And Brandon Ayuk led the way in receiving. As far as Dak Prescott goes, he didn't look all that great either. Uh, 254, uh, one touchdown, one interception. That run game, 31 yards out of Ezekiel Elliott. Although the last part of that game will definitely be talked about for the most part. Um, So, when you're down by a score, what do you try to do? If you're at the 40-yard line, 30-yard line, you're doing what you can to at least throw it into the end zone and a play by uh, supposedly, I guess, by Kellen Moore. Dak Prescott runs for it. You got about zero time, really, to get a playoff, so you got to spike the ball. Uh, A ref got had to touch the ball uh, and tried to spike it. Game over. Uh, The rules that they stated, and even Tony Romo mentioned it in the broadcast, a ref has to touch the ball. And I think Prescott had a big mental lapse from realizing you have to give the ball to the ref, not your center. And when they were all lined up, the ref couldn't get to it. I mean, if he ran around, it's like, game over anyways. Uh, That is got to be one of the biggest mistakes in playoffs history for Dallas, in playoffs in general. Disastrous play-calling choice. You know, a lot of people give Romo crap for some of his botched stuff, but I'll tell you something. The divisional game against the Giants, he at least took a shot to throw the ball to the end zone, even if it was intercepted. He knew the stakes. Even if, regardless, you take a chance, you throw it into the end zone. Why didn't they do that? There's a lot of questions into whether or not Mike McCarthy stays as head coach and if Kellen Moore becomes the head coach. I'll have to see what happens. You never know what goes on in Jerry's world. You really don't. So yeah, San Francisco goes to Green Bay. Last time these two teams faced each other, believe it was San Francisco beating the crap out of Green Bay. Though this is a much different time than where it was back in 2013. Early 2014. Then you have Pittsburgh and Kansas City. And Pittsburgh frail or just not disciplined. 42-21 to Kansas City. The score 
kind of is a little deceiving given that the uh, Steelers did score in each quarter except the first. Actually, no score at all in the first quarter by either side. That's how bad it looked originally. Uh, In the end, though, for uh, Pittsburgh, Ben Roethlisberger ends what is likely his final NFL game, 29 for 44, 215 yards and two touchdowns, which not a bad way to go out despite a blowout, but still kind of a disappointing way to end your uh, career if this is the case. Najee Harris ran for 29 yards. That team just struggled. As far as Kansas City goes, kind of a eh, type of thing early on for Patrick Mahomes. But he got into a groove, 30 for 39, so a little over 75% passes, 404 yards, five touchdowns, and one interception. There was uh, something I saw that... He joins Kurt Warner and uh, Daryl LaMonica, who was a Raider QB in the 60s, as the only guys to throw five touchdowns in multiple playoff games. So that's some pretty good company there, all things considered. And Travis Kelsey even threw a touchdown. Uh, Jarek McKinnon, if that's a name that sounds familiar to you, you're not you're, you're going to be happy. Uh, he had a pretty good game, 61 yards rushing. He also added 81 receiving and a touchdown. This is the type of stuff that San Francisco wished that they had out of him when he got hurt multiple times. But what Mahomes did as well, he did something similar to Kurt Warner when Warner took the team, took the Rams to the 99 playoffs. Touchdown to a tight end. Touchdown to a running back. Touchdown to a receiver. Touchdown to an offensive lineman. Travis Kelsey, Jarek McKinnon, Tyreek Hill, Byron Pringle, and Nick Allegretti. So, they they did their job and getting toward, and as far as the defense goes, looking pretty decent. You know, getting to, to Roethlisberger and many other things. Um, end of the day, though, for Roethlisberger, he's he's a Hall of Famer, no doubt. Will be in both Pittsburgh's Ring of Honor, if they have it, and uh, be enshrined in Canton in six years. That is if he is officially retiring. Oh, there's one, forgot about one last thing before I forget. Uh, for the football, is the... Uh, L.A. Rams beating the Arizona Cardinals. What a what a bad game that was. You know, 34-11. Jeez. You gotta be kidding me on that. I thought that was gonna be a good game. Yikes. Matthew Stafford gets his first playoff win, though. Kyler Murray looked like absolute crap. They couldn't run the ball. Arizona, they couldn't do anything. The the uh, Rams didn't need to do much. Stafford ran for 202 and two scores. Uh, Odell Beckham threw, threw a pass. And Sony Michelle and Cam Akers had themselves decent games running the ball. 
going to be a tough matchup facing against uh, Tampa Bay. Going to be very, very tough. Very tough. Kansas City and Buffalo. If I had to put the keys into what they have to do, I just I think if you're Buffalo, you try to do whatever you can to pressure Mahomes and you try to force him to run a little bit. If you're Kansas City, you need to stifle Josh Allen. As far as running on offense, I'm not sure what you can really do. I mean, you need more than just McKinnon to to help out with the ground game. Cincinnati-Tennessee should be a fun one. And actually, that was the last playoff win against uh, a team for the Bengals prior to their win against the Raiders, beating up on the Houston Oilers. I think the key is just who can stop the run game and who can create the most pressure to make Ryan Tannehill or Joe Burrow throw a bad pick. Maybe it'll be dictated by the run game or maybe dictated by special teams. Who knows? I think if you're Green Bay, I think you focus on the run game a little bit, especially if Jimmy Garoppolo does not play. If they believe that there's going to be a pass, just try to create all the pressure you can to get on Trey Lance. Not sure if there's really anything that San Francisco can do. I mean, just keep eye on the run game and keep eye on the deep ball that Aaron Rodgers throws. And then you have Tampa against the Rams, which it's just a matter of who has the better defense. That should be a fun game, too, actually. You know, who can run the ball better. Matthew Stafford can throw it pretty well, as can Brady. Can Sonny Michelle do pretty well running the ball? Can they get can Tampa get Leonard Fournette back? The divisional round will be pretty exciting. Not really a whole lot else. I mean there was some basketball there's been some basketball being played and just the questions on you know, Kyrie Irving seeing it if he can even get a chance to play at home. And I don't think he will at any point. You know, just a, just a bad situation. And just, man, baseball, I'm not sure what can be done. I guess negotiations haven't gone real well between both the MLB PA and the MLB. So unless they get a deal out uh, within a certain amount of time, I think you're going to be looking at a lockout and a strike early on. And it's a matter of if they can even get 162 games in. So there has been a strike since uh, 1994 when when the season ended abruptly that August. Actually, see if anyone got into the Hall of Fame. If they, if the voting even, uh, just gonna take a look at that. By the way, see who got inducted. And obviously, the big thing, 
you look at some of this and see who winds up into the Hall of Fame, considering a number of these guys are in their final years, including Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, PED debate, you know, all that. So, there's some other guys that they're talked about. So, there's some guys like the. So, this is from beyondtheboxscore.com. Guys that they have up for. If they could even be considered for Cooperstown or not. But, let's see. Just looking at. Hmm. They had one guy, Russell Martin. Russell Martin, good player when early on in his career, but when you look at it all together, I guess people are looking at all this stuff like analytics and all that. I'm so tired of this analytical crap. But there's a lot more to. I guess the, they're comparing Yadier Molina's stats to uh, to Russell Martin, and outside of the average in home runs, I mean, their stuff such as wins above replacement are not too bad, but there's a lot more to uh, Molina. I don't know. It's It's going to be weird. Here's an interesting one. CBS bringing up guys like Mark Burley and Andy Pettit. <sighs> hmm. I'm just seeing what there is here. I mean, when you look at it, the, the when CBS Sports bringing up Mark Burley and Andy Pettit... Andy Pettit had a really good career, and so did Burley. I mean, Burley, not the greatest careers in the world, but Burley threw a perfect game. He has a World Series. He did many good things with Chicago. And many innings. So since 95, Burley had 14,200-plus inning seasons. 214, 160, uh, win-loss percent career, 3.81 ERA, five all-star appearances, four gold gloves, World Series. Andy Pettit won 256. Actually, 10, 10 200-plus inning seasons. I think one of the things that you could make the case for for Pettit, especially when you look at something such as the 2009 season, he closed out. Though he was the starter for the for the uh, games where they advanced or, and won the World Series. ALCS MVP probably 98 or something if I had to guess. But 44 postseason starts, 19 and 11, 3.81 ERA. That's not too bad. Three-time All-Star, 2,448 strikeouts. I would think you would 
have Pettit in just because of what he did in the postseason. Like, volume stats. Similar to how Mike Messina got into the Hall of Fame a couple years ago. Tim Hudson. Eight 200 inning seasons. Five with over at least 220. That is crazy. What a workhorse. 3,000 plus innings. 2,000 plus strikeouts. Four-time All-Star. 222 and 133. I don't know. Have the standards changed so much for baseball? He played on seven different playoff teams. Some Oakland teams, obviously. And 2014 World Series with San Francisco. There's going to be some good bats at some point that will get in there. I think there's a lot of questions into whether or not I would say if David Ortiz is a first ballot guy. I'm not sure he is, but I think he gets voted. You know, I see within like the range of like the first few years. I mean, he could be first ballot, and I see some people wondering if he if he took PEDs and that's why he looks so big. I think he was just a chunky guy. Even my own father says said that too. It's just like a chunkier Babe Ruth. That's why he had over 500 plus. But I also wonder if his career could have been better in Minnesota. If he could have stood out a bit more compared to when he was in Boston. Seriously. <sighs> Man. Curious to see what happens with the Hall of Fame voting. It's going to be interesting, and there's going to be a number that are not going to get on there. Especially for any of them that are in their uh, last year of eligibility. I don't like the style of voting for Baseball Hall of Fame. I've never been huge on that. Moving on, see how movies have done. There is a new number one for for the top five, according to BoxOfficeMojo.com. So, for the good part of a month, Spider-Man No Way Home was number one. And has done so much damage, and it's still doing pretty well in the theater. But it's not number one. What is number one is... Scream, or Scream 5, or whatever, made around, or just above, $30 million. So this is the fifth film in a series that began a little over 25 years ago. And it was a surprise hit. uh, Because it was Wes Craven, who was responsible for the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And it was... It was a suspenseful film. But it was also pretty much comedic because it made fun of... Here and there... uh, Horror cliches and all that. There's a scene... I've never seen the movie, by the way, and I'm not the biggest fan of suspenseful or horror films. But it seems like it's a little more goofier, though still serious at the same time. 
there's a scene where there's a bunch of guy, a bunch of guys and girls watching uh, Halloween, and one of the characters explaining the rules of horror films. I think one was no sex, otherwise you get killed. No booze, and you never say I'll be right back because you'll never be come back. <laughs> and one of them mocking, <laughs> but it was a big hit. I mean, the movie redefined um, horror films for a while. And, you know, it led to two sequels pretty quickly, one a year later, and one in 2000. Series came back in 2011. Not a huge hit. The movies are not hated by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, definitely one of the better-known franchises of the late 90s and early 2000s. So the fact that the movie, this, this fifth Scream movie, you got kind of a new batch of new batch of um, of horror films and you got a new a combination of both new people and and old returnees uh, bringing back uh, Nevi Campbell, David Arquette uh, Courtney Cox all of which who have been involved with the series, I think since the very beginning and bringing in a new bunch of people, whether it's uh, Janet Ortega or Jack Quaid, you know. And also, it's a pretty cheap budget, according to the article on Box Office Mojo, $25 million. And when you look at it, I mean, horror movies have been even bigger than expected. Even much bigger. And bringing back some of these old franchises in adaptations, whether it's It or Halloween, people do like to see continuations of specific films. That's why Halloween did really well a little over three years ago. That's why It did phenomenally in the theater back in 2017. You know, maybe it's nice to see something that maybe isn't fully serious. Although I don't know what the direction of Scream 5 would be. But I'm, I would assume maybe some humorous parts. But still sticking to what makes a horror movie really good. And I believe that was the only new release that came out over the weekend. So... Unless uh, unless I'm mistaken, I believe that was the only new release over the weekend. So Spider-Man No Way Home made just a little over twenty million. It is near seven hundred, or if not, it reached seven hundred million dollars here domestically. So it's fourth all time in that number, and has made one point six billion plus. Since it came out last month. One of the biggest comic book movies ever. No joke. And you know like I've said. People love Spider-Man. 
People really love him. Uh, Sing Two still, still singing its way in the in the theater, making a little over eight million, and reaching just over 120 million here in the United States. As I've said, there's not really any kids' films out in the theaters, so probably your only choice. I'm wondering if that Sesame Street movie didn't get pulled out of theaters, if that would have done decently. I think, it, if I had to be honest, I think it probably would have flopped. So, $2.3 million for the 355, which did disastrously... Um, last week and all things considered it'll be lucky to even make it to 20 million um, worldwide it'll be lucky to even reach 15 million uh, domestically so not a lot of people liked it and honestly with with a cast that's kind of unrecognizable for the most part yeah and the king's man just below it, 2.2 million. Altogether, nearing 30 million uh, domestically. It's still holding on, even if it's barely making any money. This is crazy. So, let's take a look and see what films are actually on their way to theaters. So, not a whole lot, really. Um, King's Daughter, which is um, King Louis the Fourteenth film. Hmm. And Redeeming Love, which I mentioned last week, saw in a trailer. Uh, which I saw a trailer of when I saw American Underdog. And really, not a lot of films coming out at the end of January before uh, Moonfall and Jackass Forever get their big releases. And starting to see a little more trailers for Jackass Forever. And see a little more Eric Andre. And a couple other things. I think they probably are playing it a little bit safe with the trailer. Maybe showing some of the more safer stuff that that is happening. But otherwise, a lot of limited stuff. Um, a lot of limited stuff in the uh, coming out. Looking at stuff, let's see. Shot through the wall. The hunting. That looks like one of those. Look, kind of like a dump film. The Tiger Rising, which is I heard is based on a uh, book. So I'm kind of, kind of curious on it. It's got an interesting group of group of cast members, including uh, Queen Latifah and I believe Dennis Quaid, based on a kids' book. So curious as to why that's not getting a wide release. Kind of limited. That's a huge shock. Let's see what else we got. Looks like. Just looks like just a weird mesh of of films. Like compartment number six, a train film, looks like a romantic film. If I had to assume so, 
probably a foreign film too. Just a number of these films that are limited, I'm just clean starring Adrian Brody. Uh, looks like a criminal that tried to redeem himself and yikes. Let's see. Hmm. Yeah, it's just I don't know. There's not really a middle ground for it's either really small films or really big films and I think that's what's hurting people that want to go see movies. They don't always want to see corporate made stuff such as superhero films, but they may not always be interested in small indie based films that do strange, unconventional stuff. I don't know, there definitely needs you you need your twenty twenty million dollar movies and something like Scream fits that bill a little bit, even though it's in that grouping of horror movies that you see constantly coming out. But we do need those type of movies. We need the movies that cost fifteen to forty million, you know, something that can do decently with a decent budget and not be overspent on special effects and all this stuff in between. We'll have to see how the next couple of weeks go because I'm just kind of surprised there's not any attempt really at I guess the Redeeming Love film that comes out Friday. I guess that could be considered like a romantic film for, but why not have it around or close to Valentine's weekend? That's just my take on it. If I'm, if I'm being, uh, if I'm being honest, um, I guess the last thing to go to is video gaming, and the Xbox One has been around since 2013, and as they foc- focused more on the Series S and X, which came out November 2020. They decided in the summer to discontinue the Xbox One X, which is basically a little more powerful Xbox One, and an Xbox One, and the Xbox One S, which is an all-digital system. In the end run, um, kind of not surprised at that, but I guess supposedly at the end of 2020 they discontinued everything of Xbox One. So they could focus on Xbox Series S and X. So I guess no one was aware of that until, I guess, last week. Articles from The Verge and Polygon. I find that surprising, you know. Because when you release a new system, at least in the case of of Xbox there's at least a year or two for at least for them of having their old console still be around the original Xbox lasted at least two years before getting shut down in 2007 and companies started drifting away from that to the 360 and the 360 was still around for another three plus years after the Xbox One came out so I don't know, maybe they just don't 
see any reason to support it, even though there's still a ton of titles coming out for it, and tons of titles that came out for it this past year. Maybe they see a focus on digital being the thing, and you know, if people wanting the physical stuff, I guess. I don't know. And this comes just as, according to something that was brought up recently, the uh, PS4 still being made. Yeah. So, go to The Verge and take a look at their article. See if I can even get it to load fully. So, yeah, I guess the story on The Verge. And Sony talking to Bloomberg. So, this is from the Verge article. Quote, Sony tells Bloomberg it's still manufacturing new PlayStation 4s. According to the report, an internal plan had projected an end to the production of the system in 2021. But the ongoing shortages will cause the company to build about a million PS4s in 2022, according to sources. So, they're still selling them for th- a slim for 300 bucks. System, and there's always crossover between generations. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. PlayStation has always had home consoles... Sony's always had home consoles that lasted um, how should I put it well beyond what you think for a system's life after a after a new generation system comes out PlayStation 1 lasted until 2004 four years after PS2 PlayStation 2 lasted 6-7 years after PS3 came out. PS3 lasted production-wise a little over 3-plus years after PS4 came out. It was still getting games in 2018 and the final game coming out in 2020. And uh, right now PS4 is still going to be around for another year or so. Yeah, P- Place- Sony knows to support their systems. They know how to. So, yeah. <laughs> um, it's just it's not it's it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, there's still going to be games that are coming out for it. There's still reason to stick to old systems. And with all the support there, there's going to be tons of small companies that will still be interested in making their budget games onto PS4. You're still going to see small titles for PS4, Xbox One, and Switch. Big stuff, it'll start dwindling down, but you'll still I think there'll still be some big titles in 2022 and 2023. After that, I'm not sure. You know, lots of stores don't have anything. <sighs> oh boy. And one of the last things I'll bring up is is online harassment. So online harassment 
is something that has been pretty big in any streaming community in Twitch Twitch has had this issue for such a long long time almost to the point where you wonder how they handle dealing with um, people who just look to do whatever they can to make people quit using the site or quit quit a stream and Twitch put a permanent ban on a on a streamer on a guy called Gideon J-I-D-I-O-N so the story about this guy supposedly allegedly did a hate raid on on a Twitch streamer So this, so we'll talk. Look at the, um, look at the, um, look at the article. So from GameRant, for many months now, Twitch has been caught up in a battle with hate raids. Twitch streamers who've been part of a community for a while are used to dealing with the occasional heckler, which that's a given. But banning one rude viewer is very different from trying to wrangle hundreds or thousands of bot accounts that flood the streamer's chat to spam harmful messages. A few months ago, Twitch released new tools that help mitigate bot accounts' influence on Twitch chats, but that system doesn't necessarily counteract another type of hate raid. Real people can still coordinate raids where they join a streamer's chat together to harass the streamer in person, rather than using bots as proxies. So, that's that was part of the article. So, this is what happened with this GDon guy. A recent example comes from a raid that forced Pokimane, which is a streamer from Canada. I believe her name is... I'm not going to bring up the real names just so people don't harass her. Uh, to cancel a 12-hour stream rather than subject her viewers to harassment, the creator behind the raid, which is GDon, a YouTuber and Twitch streamer known for his prank content, while he initially received... while JDon initially received a 14-day suspension from the platform. Twitch has since doubled down and made the ban permanent. Twitch's stronger punishment seems like it could be connected with the company's ongoing struggle to prevent hate raids. It's possible that GDon's ban is meant to serve as a warning to other streamers to stay away from hate raiding. Over the last year or two, um, Twitch has been doing whatever they can to stop the hate that's going on. And they're doing whatever they can to ensure that this stuff doesn't happen. Will it still happen? Yes. But I think it would be in less and less quantities. Hmm. Yeah. Saying that he didn't believe that You put yourself in a bad situation. Now, if you were to target a small YouTube, a small streamer, that's one thing. But to go after one of the biggest names on Twitch, 
that's I mean you're you're asking for trouble. And the guy since apolo- tried to apologize and reverse the ban, but I I think he's going to be looked at as a lesson on why you shouldn't do this. I'm not sure if there's anything that could be done on this. And so, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. So, that should wrap up this episode here. As I said before, this podcast is on anchor.fm. You can also find us on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, excuse me, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. So, head on down to those places. Search for Geeks and Jocks. Plenty of content awaits you. So with that, episode 98 of Geeks and Jacks, this is Ryan Sullivan. Hope to hear your listeners on the next podcast. Stay safe, stay protected, take care of yourself. Take care, everyone.